we ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. Yeah, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in a, the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. It's a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Chizinski, and we have a special guest today. He's a very close friend of ours. He's the co-creator and producer of Museum of Curiosity and has a lot of claims to fame that we probably should mention. <laughs> Tell you what, Rich, give us one of your claims yeah. to fame. Okay, uh, I coined the term International Man of Mystery. Wow. <laughs> what? For the Austin Power movies, uh, you knew one of the actors in it, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, I knew Neil Malarkey, who was working very closely with Mike Myers. Yeah, those two used to be a double act, didn't they? Yeah, they were a double act. That's right. And uh, I, I used it as a program. Now, I did, it, in fact, does come from a back page advert in the stage. And uh, it was for a, a guy who was the International Man of Mystery. I can't remember his name. Um, and uh, Neil just took it and gave it to uh, Mike Myers. I just thought... It was a coincidence, but then Neil confirmed it to me that he passed that on, and yeah. that became the thing in the movie. There you go. Yeah, wow. it was me. And you're also just not yeah. quite in *Chariots of Fire*, right? Uh, half of me is in *Chariots of Fire*. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a scene where um, there's a choir singing uh, "To Be an Englishman" on a stage, and. I got moved, actually. I was near the middle. You were and next Stephen to Stephen Fry. Fry was in it, yeah. And he got moved nearer and nearer the centre. He's very tall. I think that was to make a nice sort of, like, uh, <laughs> inverted V-shape. Yeah, kind of pyramid shape of, of heads. But I got moved right... I must be just ugly, I'll say. I got moved right to the edge. And if you, if you watch on a proper... I mean, if you watch on an ordinary old telly, you won't see me at all. But uh, widescreen. Yeah, widescreen. Half of you makes it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it your better yeah. half, at least? It's my, it was my right-hand side. You tell me. I think uh, most people yeah. think their left-hand side is their better half. Oh, yeah. Do they? Yeah. 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 It's probably my evil side. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. you had one. That oh, is Oh, no, everyone has a, like, if you cut Nixon's face in half um, and uh, uh, you make a kind of mirror image of, of one side, you get evil Nixon. And Pretty sure if, both sides of Nixon were evil. Well, <laughs> yeah, but evil people have more asymmetric faces, apparently. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm sure that's a QI fact. Oh, no. People are yeah. going to be freaking out yeah. at home now looking at their wonky faces <laughs> yeah. in the yeah. mirror. So it's, it's really weird. You can see a nice, happy, smiling face if you do one side and then a really scowling, evil... Sinister. Mm -hmm. That's right. it. So You're that's right. a very long, convoluted way of saying our special guest is Rich Turner. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's the Rich Turner podcast. There we go. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so we've gathered around the microphone once again and we brought with us our favorite four facts from the last seven days. So here we go. In no particular order, these are our favorite things. Rich, we're going to start with you. Okay. Fact number one. Okay. When Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon and said, that's one small step for a man, or for man, uh, he was wearing ladies' underwear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really... Did you get that fact from Buzz Aldrin when we met him last year? <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's just like slapping him down. They were both wearing ladies' underwear, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so um, when Apollo needed to get their spacesuits made, they uh, ended up asking Playtex the bra manufacturers to, the, to, to make the spacesuits. So they actually got the women from the production lines at their factory and they made the spacesuits. They made, I think it was 21 layers, all made by them. Um, so effectively, all of the same technology, all the same skills, uh, all the same stuff as were making bras and girdles 
um, and that's what they were. And you know, look at those pictures again and think of that <laughs> as a great big Playtex bra that they're wearing, and it makes sense. It's actually you look at the stitching; it's it's you know. The stitching, <laughs> the clasp, I, they were trying to take it off and yeah, they couldn't yeah, quite fumble yeah, around. Yeah. Spurs could do it one-handed, yeah. he always bragged about that. Yeah. Why did they choose a, a latex, why did they choose that company to make the suit? Playtex, I think it's because they had the skills with the stitching. Actually, they were the only people that knew how to make that, I mean, something like three rows of stitches in a row, tiny, tiny stitches, great deal of precision required, and, and they won the contract because they were the best at doing it. Were they made out of latex? Uh, parts of the spacesuit were made of were latex. They? Yeah, I think wow. they were. Yeah. Were they frilly? <laughs> <laughs> I understand that the spacesuits now are—they haven't been washed. They're still covered in moon dust. Um, yeah. So they're sweat. sitting in, a, in the back rooms of a museum somewhere. Yeah, and I've—I've I've read that um, when ex-Apollo astronauts like to go to a museum to revisit the whole experience of going to space, they don't go to the Smithsonian to look at the rockets and the. On the capsules, they go to the spacesuit museum or wherever is that it, is. Is there one? Yeah, there's a spacesuit in the um, in the science museum, isn't there in in London? I don't Have know. Seen that? I've seen it. Um, it's quite cool because it has, like, where you would think are the um, what do you call it? The arm seam. Yeah. So where the seams are, mm. you would think it's the seams. Actually, it's little pipes where they used to put water up there to keep people warm or cool. Oh, yeah, that They're was really one, cool. of, one of the undergarment layers, yeah. And yeah. Actually, that was a British invention. Was it? Yeah, that was invented for um, British uh, fighter jet pilots ah. um, to keep them warm. Uh, and I think it was one of the proudest moments. I think Patrick Moore flagged it up on the day of the moon landing to remind people that there was a, something British that was something up there. Something British on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> there's, not, there's not many British things on the moon, are there? We, we were talking the other day, you and I, about Patrick Moore, mm. and you were convinced that he had a crater on the moon. Yeah. But he yeah. doesn't. It was a different really? Moore. Mm. Well, well, he, uh, I yeah. mean, the one that Rich thought that was Patrick Moore's turned out to be... Another oh, more. It's another more. Roger yeah. Moore? Yes, <laughs> Roger. <laughs> From Moonraker. <laughs> uh, Moonraker, is that just a film with Roger Moore raking out a big crater <laughs> on the moon? Where does Moonraker and the name come from? Because there is, they call, there's a town in Wiltshire or somewhere that, where they call them Moonrakers because supposedly they were so stupid they saw a moon inside the, a lake and they tried to get it out. But I don't know where that comes from, James Bond. Wow, it's no, a weird know. thing to... Put a Bond movie about, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Based in Wiltshire. <laughs> well, uh, Neil Armstrong's boots are supposed to be around this space somewhere, aren't they? Floating uh, around. Are they? I, I thought they were so. in a museum. Wow. I think the, well, the, the, the uh, what's it called? The silicon rubber. Right. Um, they're called overshoes. They're like galoshes that they had on, on the spacesuit. They actually, I think, threw them off. I think they're on the moon. Oh, on the I moon. I think they, they're among the many things that they chucked onto the moon and left there. There's the lovely Hasselblad cameras are all up there, except one. I think one came back home, and that was auctioned recently for quite a lot of money. I can't remember how much. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It's so careless how tolerant we are of littering on the moon. They're, I can't remember how many billions of tons it is, but there's like some billion tons of litter in space, oh, in space and then a lot of people have left litter on the moon mm. yeah. and it's basically fine yeah, well there's, there's strict laws now about uh about space junk because we're it's getting to the point now i mean the movie that's the whole point of the movie gravity was that they were pointing out that yeah. we'll reach this point where we can't actually leave our planet because of these spinning 
bits of debris that are just hurtling around the planet mm. six times the speed of a bullet. So it's 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 been been a big concern. On top of it, on the moon, they've actually turned or they're trying to turn certain areas of the moon into sort of like national parks, as it were, mm. so that no one could because the Chinese are now going there. India have got plans to go there, and they want all these heritage spots like the Apollo Eleven moon landing spot to be. Yeah, to be preserved. Isn't that typically American? You go and trash a place, and the bits that you've trashed, you declare to be preserved to be preserved as a national park. Yeah, you know, forget the rest. That's well, pristine. the thing is, I reckon if they t- call it a national park, then technically it's going to be an American national park. So that means part of the moon would be American. Yes, yeah. Yeah. But you're not allowed to claim parts of the moon, are you're you? You're not allowed to, but that's a technicality. Yeah. Well, there is there is a, a scam, and I can't remember what it's called. In fact, there are a whole bunch of scams that allow you to buy land on the moon, and yeah. they look surprisingly plausible, but definitely not a thing. If anyone's yeah. bought land on the moon, you do not own land on the moon. No, but there is something on the moon that does belong to an individual millionaire on Earth, and that's the lunar rover that was sent up by the Russians. It landed at the same time that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were on there, and it was a remote rover that picked up some rocks. Um, and uh, the Russians left it there, and they're a bit short of money for their space program, so they auctioned it off. Someone oh. owns it. Oh, really? Wait, so that landed within the same time frame? Yeah, literally in the same yeah. on the same day. No, it, it must it have was been around. There it, it was yeah. moving on the surface of the moon when they were moving around. That's fantastic. I've never heard that. Anyway, on underwear. Um, yes, let's go back to underwear. Let's talk about underwear, guys. Um, you can buy. Uh, flatulence filtering underwear now. Oh. Yeah, it's handy. It's called you Shreddies. It, it doesn't do that anyway. Uh, for years. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry, everyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, isn't that good? You can buy it for like $35, and they're called Shreddies, and they're made of a special kind of carbon, which apparently absorbs the smell. Yeah, it'll be like... Um like graphite kind of stuff. Yeah. They actually call it Zorflex, but I think that might be a made-up word. It'd be a bit like charcoal, which would normally stop normal smells. So it? if you can't afford a pair, you could just put some charcoal in your pants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was the British troops in World War Two. Some British troops had a secret plan to go into battle in women's underwear. This was a Scottish um, group. They were kilt-wearing soldiers, and they were worried that their legs were being exposed to poisonous gas. Uh, and obviously... Mm other parts underneath the kilts that they wouldn't normally cover would be um would be um hit by the poison gas um so they test they did tests to see um if it would work if they wore long stockings and woolen bloomers and the tests showed that it would work uh, but it was decided that the protective clothing would be too costly to supply all scots regiments and so they just banned kilts from the battlegrounds that's tragic yeah yeah so when did they ban kilts uh, 1940. Really? Yeah. Oh, that is a shame. What, they don't march into battle in, in a kilt anymore? Not on the battleground. They can march yeah. in it, but they wouldn't fight in it. No, so it's just for dressing up at weekends now. <laughs> <laughs> it should be, really. Um, James Joyce always used to keep a pair of doll's knickers in his pocket. <laughs> but apparently he always kept them there, and then when he got really drunk sometimes, he would take them out, put them on his fingers, <laughs> and then do like a little dance on the table <laughs> with his fingers. I'm doing the dance for people at home. <laughs> That does actually sound entertaining. Yeah, yeah, so it's a party trick. That's Much better than his books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit easier have to understand re- than Ulysses. Yeah, anyway. have you yeah. read Ulysses? Has anyone read Ulysses? No. I started reading it. Yeah. I started reading it as well. It's completely, it's completely no. unreadable, isn't it? It's yeah. pretty dense. It was so, it's so unreadable that when it first came out, it got banned in Britain because they thought it was written in code. <laughs> that's true that's true Das Kapital was the reason it was allowed to be published I only found this out yesterday uh, they knew that it was like 
revolutionary dangerous stuff but it was deemed uh, by the publishing powers that be that it was totally dense and unreadable and no one would ever make it through it and it would have oh, really? no conceivable impact wow. yeah idiots <laughs> Okay, uh, it's time to move on to fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact is that in 1963, Muhammad Ali released a stand-up comedy album. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's good. And cool. it's I'd love called, to hear it. well, it's called I Am the Greatest. I didn't know he intended it to be comedy. So was it, it, it was meant to be <laughs> funny, because it was kind of marketed as like a cabaret sort of thing. Yeah, it, it says, this is, this is the blurb on the back, it says, yep. It's no empty boast, as the greatest sportsman of the last, this, or any century does his thang in a hilarious, amazing collection of stand-up, poetry, and rapping just prior to entering the history books by becoming the greatest ever, catalogs, heavyweight champ of all time. So wow. that's, that's the kind of, yeah, stand-up's in there. And the reason I know about this is was I was in HMV walking around looking at the audio comedy section, and, you know, Peter Cook, Jerry Seinfeld... Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I was like, what is this doing here? <laughs> it's interesting, though, because it, this was when he was a rising boxing superstar. It was at the time when he was doing quite well. He wasn't yet world champion. And also the year, 1963, it's a really interesting year. It was the year that Bill Cosby released his first album. It was kind of the period where stand-up comedy was really being turned into something. So you could argue that the album that he released, uh, Muhammad Ali, was a spoken word album, but I think it's only called a spoken word album because of the context of the time that it was released in. But it was a guy on stage telling jokes, reading funny poems to an audience who were laughing along to it. He was basically like the predecessor of Tim Key. I don't, maybe he was serious though. He was a famously not a humble man. I think he had the impression in his head that he was the greatest because he did some extraordinary things. Like uh, there's, a, there's a clip on YouTube that you can see of when a guy is standing on the edge of a building ready to commit suicide. He's just lost it, and the police are there and everything, and they're filming it. It's just a news crew filming it, and suddenly someone just goes, and then Muhammad Ali arrived, and he comes running to the building with his entourage. He gets up, he's in the other window, and he talks the man down. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing shot. It's also interesting the way that, because um, it's just on that idea of that sort of, that idea that he could just run up to a building and talk someone down and that would just allow him, oh, Muhammad Ali's here. Yeah, let him chat to the guy. Like, <laughs> Step back. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot better than when Paul Gascoigne turns up with a fishing rod and some <laughs> yeah. chicken, isn't it? Yeah, I'm actually think, trying, trying to think of any sports person alive today who could do anything um, like actually, that. Actually, there was. Entertainer. Uh, some of the England cricket team talked to Guy off a bridge in uh, yeah, Australia. in Australia they? last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stuart Broad was it? Stuart Broad and can't remember who else. Matt Pryor, I think. Yes. You know the famous Rumble in the Jungle match yeah. with mm. George, George Foreman. Foreman. Uh, what, what, it, was an, it was in an African country. Yeah, in Zaire. Yeah, um, it was in Kinshasa. Yes. Uh, this is this is not an amazing fact. I just didn't know it um, because of the time difference. The match was fought at four a.m. in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone in the country who came to watch it, because it was such a big event, uh, they were all there at 4 a.m. Muhammad Ali was up at 4 a.m. It's one of those times where you don't know whether it's best to stay up for it or get up early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you accidentally fall asleep at 3.30 and you yeah. miss the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I think the, go the government paid a huge amount. It was, in, was it in Zaire? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, I think the, Z the Zaire government paid a huge amount of money to have it there, didn't it? Because uh, it was going to help uh, tourism and help. Draw attention to it. Yep. It's a big tourist hotspot now, Democratic Republic of really Congo, isn't it? Work like a charm, guys. <laughs> <Just a lot. laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so uh, just speaking, just going into boxing, okay, uh, yeah. rather than Muhammad Ali, um, the first rules of boxing, the first codified rules were the Queensby rules, and they had an explicit rule forbidding boots with having springs. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, okay. Which is quite good. So before that, yeah. you were allowed boots with springs. Presumably, someone must have gone to a boxing match with springs on his boots, and they had to ban it. Yeah, that sounds like it would just be really quite cumbersome and not very helpful. I know. Well, you could bounce over them and then hit them on the back. <laughs> That's of the head. true. Seriously, good springs. I was thinking you should <laughs> yeah. get springs on your back, so when you're knocked down, you just come <laughs> right back up again. That would be great, like one of those toys yeah. you get. Another sure. rule um, about boxing in the 18th century: most boxers had long hair. Um, but they stopped that after referees made it legal to hold your opponent's hair with one hand and hit him with the other. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, we're going to have to wrap up on this one. Is anyone... He was also a magician, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Muhammad Ali could could do magic tricks. He was a magician as well. Really? Yeah. What kind of magic tricks? Uh, well, I, I don't know. His, his son, uh, Muhammad Ali Jr., who's a very um, poor man now because uh, he's been sort of cut off by Muhammad Ali's third wife. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, no, he remembered that his dad used to do magic tricks in the ring when he was, uh, when he was in training. Yeah, yeah, he used to um, he used to make um, uh, handkerchiefs disappear, and he used to do like a levitation trick where you stand on the tiptoes of one toe, and it makes it look like you're levitating. Ah. Okay. Um, but because um, he, because of his Islamic beliefs, um, he wasn't allowed to deceive anyone, so he would always explain exactly how his tricks were done as soon as he'd done them. <laughs> and was thrown out of the magic circle pretty <laughs> swiftly. Yeah. I wouldn't like to be the bouncer to throw him out of the magic circle. No. Do you? I got one last fact for Muhammad Ali. Do we all know what he changed his name from Cassius Clay to? Muhammad uh, Ali. Yeah, I know what, what you're, you're going to say. Yeah, it's nice. Can I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it Cassius X? Yeah, Cassius X. And he did it because he was with um, Malcolm X at the time, hanging out with him. So there was there was the X-Men. There was <laughs> and how long did he keep that name for long then? No, he didn't. Uh, I think no. he only had it because while well, he was waiting to get ver- a verified name from the Nation of Islam, didn't he? When he decided to shake Cassius Clay because that was his slave name. But the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, had to give him a proper name and so he took Cassius X in the interim I think that's a good that was it yeah it is yeah Yeah. might use that next year cool Mm. you heard it here first guys yeah (laughs) alright okay time for fact number three and that is Chazinski yep my fact is that in 1325 in Italy war was declared and 2000 people were killed because of a stolen bucket okay the war of the oaken bucket (laughs) oaken bucket uh, so it was. There were two rival city states, Bologna and Modena, at the time. And Modenese soldiers stole the bucket, the Bolognese, Bolognese bucket, from their city well, and it had some loot in it. Apparently, that I guess they'd acquired in other kind of battles. And they stole the bucket, and so Bologna declared war on them and brought a thirty-two thousand strong army to invade and reclaim the bucket. You could say that the Crusades, I mean, it's all, it all depends on how you translate words for sort of a vessel that holds things, oh, but yeah. you could say that the Crusades were all fought over a bucket, couldn't you? Yeah. Go on. The Holy well, Bucket. The Holy Grail. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are ancient languages. It might be just a bucket. You know. I like wars that are started over uh, really m- apparently minor and comical 
such as such as the war of jenkins ear that's quite a famous one isn't oh, yeah, it yeah what was that uh so jenkins was a british privateer uh in 1738 and he went out to the americas and his ear was cut off by spans the spanish who were also in the americas privateering themselves and so he came back to britain and he brandished his ear in parliament and was like look what those spanish guys have done to me and uh so they went to war Oh, did, what to get the ear back or? Oh, no, he ha- he had the ear just because oh. they were so irritated that the Spaniards dared cut off the ear. Of... It, it kind of makes you wonder about the butterfly effect, really. That maybe every war in the world was started by something incredibly tiny. Tiny, yeah. Just we don't know what it was always. Yeah. That's all, just know. two people just going, oh, "You're a dick." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you say who won the war? Uh, the War of Jenkins' Ear, or the oh, War of the, in the, of the Bucket. Oh, yeah, the War of the Bucket. So the Modenese, who'd stolen the bucket, initially won the war. And you can still, if you go to Modena in their cathedral, you can see the bucket. It's proudly hung up as a symbol of their victory. Oh. Is it, is it, wow. Yep, an oaken bucket. Go check it out. An, an empty bucket, nothing in it. I don't think there's anything in it now, yeah. no. Here's um, a better reason for going to war. Um, when the Gauls sacked Rome... Um, for the first time, it was because they'd recently drunk wine for the first time and they wanted to take over the place where it came from, that <laughs> according is to Diodorus. The best reason I've ever heard. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the shortest war in history, the Britain-Zanzibar War, you could argue, was started by a cricket match, basically. It was that... So it was in 1896, and it was started when Zanzibar declared war because British ships were in a harbour they weren't allowed to be in, but they were in the harbour because the British sailors on the ships wanted to participate in a cricket tournament. Oh. And there was a football war, wasn't there, between Nicaragua and Costa Rica, was yes. it? Yes, I think we might have mentioned that on our Nicaragua Costa uh, yeah, Rica podcast. can't remember, but it was um, basically just there was a lot of tension between the two countries, and then there was a football match, there was some... Um, problems in the stands a bit of hooliganism and then that just turned into a full-scale war mm. and, and as in always in war there were no real clear winners yeah um costa rica has got a bit of t- um a bit of form as well because they had the google maps war do you remember that one what was that oh, no. um what happened was um there's a an island in a river uh, between nicaragua and uh, costa rica and they've been fighting over it for years, so this is really a pretext. Uh, but the Nicaraguan guy said, oh, this." they sent some people over there in Costa Rica. was like, why, why are you doing that? He said, well, just look at Google Maps. It's ours. And someone in Google Maps had put the, territory, the border in a slightly different place than Costa Rica thought. And so they used Google Maps as a pretext for war. didn't last very yeah. long, and Google Maps kind of apologized. And... <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. Smart. Um, okay, we should we should wrap up. On I had one more one. interesting yep. bucket. Bring it, bring <laughs> your bucket. It's, it's not even that good. Uh, the only other interesting bucket I could find, and it's kind of worth mentioning because it's about the Sentinelese people, and I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but they're one of the few people in the world which we don't know anything about because they're very hard to access. So they live in the Andaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal, and um, they, whenever outsiders try and sort of penetrate their their culture, then they get arrows shot at them and they're repelled. So no one knows anything about them except sometimes people go and leave gifts for them and so anthropologists have been in the past and they've left gifts of coconuts bananas pigs and buckets for them and they take away all of these and they take them back into the forest with them but they only take away red plastic buckets but they refuse to take away green plastic buckets that are left for them nobody knows why a mystery weird yeah well one day someone's going to get in there and be able to ask them why That'd be great, wouldn't it? That'd be the first question that should be asked. Why? What's what's with the whole red bucket bucket. thing? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, buckets are quite dangerous. 
Um, the only stats I have are from 1996, but in that year, 10,907 Americans were taken to hospital with injuries caused by buckets. Wow. Did you get any details on the injuries? I, was that a prank, buckets up on top of doors? Oh, it could have been that, couldn't it? I, I was thinking was people tripping over buckets. Yeah, that too. Or standing on one. Um, some t- to get behind a horse. But a lot of Americans are into that, apparently. What? Yeah, no, there was a documentary on Channel 4 a little while ago that, um, yeah. Are um, you talking about what I think you're talking about? Yeah, the, I think the name for the documentary was Footprints on the Pale. And it's the, the <laughs> that's what the, the wife should look for uh, uh, when she goes down to the barn to see if her husband's been... Um, been messing I'm with sorry. The well, Kinsey, I'm according confused. to the Kinsey report, a lot of uh, in the fifties, a lot of young Americans' first experience of um, of sex was with an with an animal. Right. I think <laughs> the Kinsey report has been slightly um, <laughs> debunked a little bit, oh, but yeah. Um, All right. I mean, that obviously does go on in certain yeah. places, I suppose. <laughs> and footprints on the pail. Yeah. Footprints on the pail could just mean they were using it to climb onto the horse. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what Rich is saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great country song title, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, now it's time to head to the final fact of the show, and that is James's. James, what do you got? Okay, my fact is there is a group of chimpanzees in Zambia who wear a blade of grass in their left ear as a fashion statement. That's mm. quite cool. Oh. Yeah. How do we know it's a fashion statement? Well, because there's no other use for it, and they've noticed that when it started with one chimpanzee called Julie uh, in 2010, and she started walking around with this little bit of grass out of her ear, and then whenever she met another chimpanzee, um, they would put a piece of grass in their ear, and it kind of spread like a meme around the Zambian forests. And so they think it's a cultural, fashionable thing. And the pictures are brilliant. We'll put one up on the website, but it's just literally like... You know, like um, in... Um, sitcom in um, sketches where you had a, a like a farmer and he was chewing a long piece of grass. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like that, only it's sticking out of their ear. Well, it's a long piece that sticks right in there, not behind their ear. It's sticking no, no, out right of their in ear. there, and it's probably about um, I would say about twenty five centimeters long, and they're just walking along with it sticking out. It's like an earring kind That's of great. thing. I, I wonder if it's to do with um, we're the people who put the, that in our ear, that bit of grass, and you're the guys who don't. So it's a tribal. Yeah. To make them. Yeah. Um, the chimpanzees in the Kabale forest uh, in Zambia, they use sticks to get their um, sticks to get honey, whereas Bodongo forest chimpanzees use leaf sponges. And it's always people who are part of this group. And if they move to the other group, they use their um, their technique. So that seems to be a cultural thing as well. So there's quite a few, quite a lot of evidence of culture in chimpanzees. I know that mandrills use like uh, sharpened sticks to clean out their ears with, but it seems like you couldn't clean out your ear with grass. But yeah, they use uh, sharpened sticks for that. And they also uh, shave off sticks to pick out their toenails. They've been oh. seen doing that. So that's nice. That shows a bit of fashion consciousness. Mm. Yes. Or aesthetic. Or personal hygiene. Personal hygiene. <laughs> yeah. It's more than I do. <laughs> can i can i throw a completely left field i'm just going on word association here yes, please. please um but you you just mentioned toenails and it's one of my favorite most recent facts that was that um there's a museum in america um which one of its exhibits is possibly elvis's toenail and because it, it was found in the carpet of his home so they think it might be his uh and that's that's just sitting there wow um also not related, but I found out this week that uh, Sir Walter Scott had a salt cellar made from King Charles I's fourth cervical vertebra. Right. Just another celebrity body wow. part. Yeah. Have you seen Charles Darwin's stick, his walking stick? No. 
everyone should have a look at this. We'll put this on qi.com slash podcast. But if you want to see it in person and you live in London or coming to London, you can go to the Wellcome Trust and they have it on display in their collection. And it looks like he's a Bond villain. It's got this skull with with emerald eyes. Yeah, yeah. It looks really (laughs) sinister. It's his walking stick. And you go, that's not your walk. That's... That's Satan's walking. <laughs> Maybe that was just on his evil side. Yeah, that's Blofeld's. Yeah, yeah. He was a bit of an obsessive walker as well. I think he, in his last home that he lived at, he had a path made that he just walked and walked and walked round and round on this square. Someone who loved to explore, that's not very adventurous. (laughs) (laughs) I was um, reading about uh, Stonehenge for something about the radio show that we're about to do, um, and it was about Charles Darwin, that he was the first person to um, do an excavation at um, Stonehenge. Um, But what he was actually doing was looking for earthworms, and he wanted to see how the digging of earthworms would affect the way that the stones would change um, how upright they were but that was the first scientific thing done at Stonehenge, done at Stonehenge. Wow. wow we're really side swiping the, the chimpanzee facts out of this I know. Uh, yeah we should <laughs> get back on track I'll tell you what let's go to fashion Okay. Um, because there was a fashion in the 1860s amongst l- young ladies uh, in England to walk with a limp in imitation of Alexandra, Princess of Wales, a consort of Edward VII. Uh, she'd had rheumatic fever when she was younger, and she had a stiff knee, and so she walked around with a limp, and everyone just copied her. And it lasted for ten years, for it, disappearing without a trace. It must be weird when you're a royal, because you won't know if people are emulating you out of a, a sort of or just admiration the piss. for you. Or just yeah. taking the piss. Yeah. 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 In the yeah. 18th and 19th centuries, I think, there was a ban on wearing over a certain weight of clothes because heavy fabrics were only supposed to be worn by the wealthy. It was a social thing. And so poorer people used to not wear underwear um, so that they, they wouldn't have to exceed the weight limit. And also in the 18th and 19th centuries, I think in France, it was fashionable to wet your clothes a bit before you put them on so that when you were wearing them, it would become obvious, it would, they would cling to your body and it would show that you weren't wearing underwear. Isn't that raunchy oh, really? for 18th yeah. and 19th century There society? were subtree laws, weren't they, that said that yeah. only um, people with a certain amount of money were allowed to wear certain things and i remember in france it was something like you weren't allowed to have more than 103 buttons on your clothes or something <laughs> stupid like that that poor it policeman it's at the lower end of policing isn't it when you're counting buttons on women's dresses <laughs> uh, um, a much I, sought after job i'm sure yeah i also was looking this is actually um, when i was looking into your facts about underwear rich uh, mm. it was only in the 1920s that women realised that it was good to sort of separate breasts for fashion. And so pre-1920s, and in 1905, for instance, a French bus supporter came out that was uh, really, really fashionable, and it effectively unified the breasts. And the monoboob was basically the only fashion until the 1920s. You just have to have one one single boob. But but you mean like a boob tube, right? You don't mean like it looked like one boob. Well, the Victorians yeah, used to like, talk about a woman's bosom, didn't they? They exactly. probably only thought they had one. There's only one. There's only <laughs> yeah. one the, yeah. Men were horrified. Yeah. I like the quote on the Wikipedia page that says, until the 1920s, breasts were always treated en masse. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, okay, we, uh, we need to wrap up. Uh, anyone got any last second facts we want to throw in? Oh, one interesting thing on animals wearing clothes. Obviously, they don't wear clothes out of choice, but um, I love Harry. There are a couple of people. So putting animals on clothes is much older than you think. And what do, what do we call it uh, when cats do it? Like 
lolcats. Oh, yeah, lolcats. Yeah. Putting, putting clothes on animals. On animals, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it happened in the 19th century, a guy called Harry Pointer. And then there was this guy called Harry Whittier Fries, um, who lived from 1879 to 1953. He was a photographer who made his entire living out of dressing up uh, cats, dogs, rabbits, etc. And they're really cute. I'll put some of these pictures on the website as well, if we can get them. But um, he preferred cats because he said... Rabbits are the easiest to photograph in costume, but incapable of taking many human parts. Puppies are tractable when rightly understood, but the kitten is the most versatile animal actor and possesses the greatest variety of appeal. So there you go. Cats are the best actors. Yeah. Okay, that's it. That's the end of our show. That's all our facts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to find out any more about the things that we've been talking about in this episode, you can head over to qi.com slash podcast, where we're going to have a page full of links, videos, uh, Muhammad Ali clips. Uh, go to amazon.com and .co.uk to buy his album. Please don't sue us if you own the rights to that album. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and if you want to ask any of us questions about the stuff that we've been talking about on this show, you can get us on our Twitter handles. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At Eggshaped. Rich? At The Rich Turner. And Anna? Uh, you can email me on podcast at qi.com. Yeah, it became blatantly obvious that you're not on Twitter still when you said, what are they called, lolcats? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Going, What's the word? <laughs> um, okay, uh, that's it for our show. Uh, tune in again next week. Uh, we'll be back again with another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>